So we're walking through the last section of Genesis, and the account began with this is the account of Jacob, and the main account of Jacob is the story of Joseph, but today is going to be a a brief interlude uh, of an account of Judah and Tamar, and this is going to be uh, an account where there's a lot of trouble, a lot of murkiness, It's, it's just trouble upon trouble, and even the people who seem to be in the right are doing it in a way that's going to be uncomfortable to our ears and our spirit. And, and I think this is a great time to, a great opportunity this Sunday to think about how God works His will out amidst uh, a troubled crowd. Okay? I mean, maybe you need to re- remember that God loved us before we were His children. That means there's so many people outside the walls of this church that God loves that are not yet His children. And their world and lives may be full of a mess. And this is a great way to see how God enters into that. With that said, I want to talk about uh, uh, a kind of uh, cultural issue of marriage and family. We're going to encounter in the text what is called a leveret marriage. And that's the technical term. Lever in Latin is brother-in-law. Leveret marriage is a marriage with a brother-in-law. That's... Uh, that's what you're going to see this morning in the text. I want to deal with it up front because I want you to kind of understand it as we hit it rather than be confused and then explained. Sometimes in the, in the life of the church, you'll hear people talk about a kinsman redeemer. That's a similar concept as leveret marriage. And, and what this is, it's not an antiquated ancient idea. It's not a primitive idea. It's just an idea that's not belonging to our culture. So right now, somewhere on the globe, there are cultures and people groups that practice leveret marriage. And the reason they practice this kind of marriage is because of the way that their, their culture is, is built and a, the ideas that kind of give them strong culture. So it's a complex uh, cultural idea, but here's some of the things that would push a culture towards a leveret marriage. You, if a people group is um, very centered around uh, the family clan, okay, that's not American, but there are people peoples on the earth that have a very strong clan notion. Their tribe or their clan is is very important. That's something that would push towards this kind of of marriage that we're going to see here. Another idea that would come out is if there's a notion of the preservation of land and property throughout generations. That is so that you pass the land through the firstborn son. Any, Any people that wants to preserve property has to pass land down through a consistent person. In America, we subdivide, don't we? And then you lose, you lose the, the landed identity of a people um, because land is just kind of thinned out. Well, in some people groups, they hold on to this idea of land. And then in, in certain areas of the world, still, there's just, there is a, a practical need for a man in the home in order for the family to survive. There's just life is physically hard, and God made the man to work the field. And leveret marriage is a way of preserving a widow and her children in the event that she finds herself husbandless. So uh, those are some of, the, some of the reasons why I'm trying to introduce it to you as, as something other than an ancient, antiquated, primitive idea, because it isn't, and it's just not American. But what it is, maybe I should get to what it is, what it is, is imagine a husband and a wife, and the husband passes away. In a leveret marriage, the brother of this now deceased husband would come and t- 
take this woman in as his wife and seek to bear children through her on behalf of his dead brother. So this brother-in-law would lay down with his brother's wife, his now dead brother's wife, the widow, lay down so she would give birth to children, hopefully a son, and that this brother-in-law would raise this son, would provide for his the woman and her children, would raise them for the sole purpose of this now son, this new son, receiving the inheritance of his dead father. So it's, it is a burden on a family. A leveret marriage is a, is, a, is a tall order to ask the brother-in-law of, especially if he's the number two brother. Imagine you're number two and your oldest brother passes away. Where is the inheritance going to go now? That's right, you. It's going to go to you. Except in a leveret marriage where now you take your oldest brother's wife you spend your life sacrificing to raise this child so that when he becomes a man, he gets the inheritance of your father. You see, you see that? That can feel like a bummer. At least somebody's going to feel like a bummer. It's going to feel like a bummer to somebody today in the text. That's what a leveret marriage is. You'll see it when it comes up in the text, and, and now you'll uh, have a better sense of, of what we're dealing with. Let's look at the first five verses of chapter 38. It says, at that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and lay with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kazib that she first, that she gave birth to him. Okay, the text begins with this phrase, at that time Judah left. And uh, if, you, if you're familiar with the story of Joseph, it started last week. Joseph in his coat of many colors, he gets uh, betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery into Egypt. That's the story that's going to continue pretty much all the way to Genesis 50, except for Genesis 38, Judah and Tamar seems to kind of collide into the narrative and wedge itself in, and it, it's uninvited, it feels like, to some. It, it starts and it stops. After 38, we're never going to talk about Judah and Tamar again, really. It's just, gonna, it's just here. And one of the ways it holds hands, one of the few ways it holds hands with the rest of the text is this phrase, at that time. Which is, the implication is, at least the writers of the Scripture want you to appreciate that at the same time that the son Joseph is being forcibly taken from the house, Judah is voluntarily leaving. So Joseph, the, the promised one, is being sold and betrayed out, but Judah is leaving. And I, I, think, that, I think we could build on this a little bit. I, we could probably go too far, but I think we could build on it a little bit and say that it seems like he's leaving to make his own life. Maybe he's had enough of this train-wrecked family. If you look at the text, there's a few clues about that. It says, at this time, it says, Judah left his brothers and went to live with a friend. Which, 
again, among a very tight, family-oriented people, would seem, could be construed as a certain kind of betrayal. Like the friendship and brotherly love of his other ten brothers is not enough. That he would leave all of his brothers and go down and live with this, I mean, I think he's a punk from Adula, this Adula knight, Hira. He kind of falls in with this buddy, and they, they head out, and they go live. That's the first sign. The second sign you see is, is that Judah marries a Canaanite woman. So he marries outside of the family, which is, you remember, this has been an issue ever since Abraham's son Isaac. When Abraham had Isaac, and it was time for Isaac to get married, Abraham called in the chief servant and said, Look, I don't want my son to marry a Canaanite. Go back to the land from which we came and find a fitting wife for him. That's how we got Rebecca. And then another example that shows up in the text, of earlier text of Genesis, is when Jacob and Esau are kind of the residue of the, of the trickery and all of that. What it ends up saying is that Esau goes off and marries some women of the land, and it says he was a constant source of grief to his parents. And they turned around and said to Jacob, we don't want that to happen to you. Go, go to the land of our fathers and find a good woman for you. And he goes and he finds Leah and Rachel. Judah leaves his household voluntarily, leaves the friendship of his brothers, goes off with his buddy, and next thing you know, he's married to a Canaanite woman. And so certainly in the text of Genesis, you would say, you know, you have one brother who's being pulled away and you have one brother who's had enough and is going to go off He's going to make a life on his own. He's going to do it his way. And that's what you have with Judah. And and apparently, it seems to be working out well for him. He has three sons. It has the appearance of success. Now let's keep reading and see what happens. 6 through 11. It says this, Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn. And her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So he put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. So it seemed like a dream is kind of turning around for Judah. It says Ur was put to death because he was wicked. This is interesting. It's not often that God puts people to death like this. I mean, we should recognize that God's putting us all to death because we're wicked. All right? I mean, that's why we die. The wages of sin is death. But the kind of instantaneous judgment of God, the zapping and the zinging, we don't see that very often in the Bible. So Ur must have been pretty bad. But then... Um, Onan receives Tamar as, as his, his leveret wife here. And what you end up seeing is that Onan is, if Ur was bad, Onan is at least as bad. The selfishness that comes out. So not only does Onan not want to honor his father's wishes, 
but he doesn't want to give he doesn't want to give a son to err. So there's this selfish sense of I don't want to fulfill my requirements as a brother, which by the way in Jewish law, which you know, it's not yet here, but in Jewish law would have been a highly offensive thing. They would have been able to take their sandal off and slap you in the face if you wouldn't fulfill this vow. And so there's this selfish sense of Onan going, instead of giving my brother what he has a right to in order to preserve the path of inheritance and all this, I'm going to stop short and not allow that to happen so that I can receive the gift instead. That's the first thing. But to make matters, I mean, to, to make matters so much worse, the way he treats Tamar is cruel and wicked. I mean, stop and think for a second. It's one thing to say, I don't want to give my brother a son. It's another thing to continue to lie with his wife. It doesn't say the one time he went down and laid with her, does it? It says whenever he laid with her. Do you, do you hear the, the way he's objectifying this woman? He's taking her. He's in, totally inverted the purpose of leveret marriage. The purpose of leveret marriage is solely to give her a son so that his dead brother might have it. But he's saying, I don't want my brother to have a son, but I still want to have her. And so he's enjoying her physically, but denying her the gift of a son. So God smites him, and I'm glad. So we're down to Shelah. You know, what started out for Judah is this great event. He has three sons. Now he's down to two sons, and his wife is about to die, incidentally. It's kind of this reversal of fortune for him. But Shelah, this is the response Judah says about Shelah. He says to Tamar, Shelah's still a boy. He's not ready to be married, which was likely true. So he says to her, why don't you go home and live with your parents? Go home and live with your parents, and I'll call you when he's a man. All right, so already Judah's trying to, he's trying to sweep her under the rug. Judah is putting her out to pasture. In fact, it says that. It says Judah thought to himself, what does Judah think? Judah, Judah thinks, already she's killed two of my sons. You hear that? Do you hear that? In Judah's mind, right, Judah doesn't know what God knows. Judah doesn't know that Ur was wicked and God put him to death. And Judah doesn't know that Onan was a jerk and God put him to death too. In Judah's mind, Tamar is a witchy woman. And she's the reason. He's grown superstitious. He doesn't even have the eyes to see the wickedness of his sons. And he's pinning the, down, the death of his sons on Tamar. Now you just tell me. So obviously we know that Judah has no desire to get Tamar back for Shelah. He's putting her to pasture while something else could happen. That's what's going on here. Now, you just think, imagine you're Tamar. What do you think your prospects are right now? Small town, do you think everybody knows that you're the reason? Don't you think the word on the street, you slept with both those guys and they're dead? I don't think the phone's ringing off the hook for you. So you see Ur is wicked. You see Onan is wicked. We have to see that Judah is wicked. Had the text said here, God saw the wickedness of Judah and put him to death, it would be perfectly appropriate. Now, this isn't the heart of the story, but I, do, I, I think it's worth talking about that this, this element preaches, this idea. Just think about Judah for a second. He grows up 
in a pseudo-godly household. Okay, this is certainly familiar to us, growing up in a pseudo-godly household, where, you know, they knew about the promise, but the home itself didn't really testify of the goodness of God in righteous ways. There was idolatry within the household and deception. And so that's, that is the world that Judah grew up in. And so at some point, Judah says, I've had enough of it. He puts space between him and all that promise, hocus-pocus of his parents. He wants to make a way in the life. He has a little bit of carryover. You know, he has certain notions about how you're supposed to behave. He gets a daughter for his, uh, his sons and all that stuff. But he's making his own choices. He's living in the land the way he wants to live. All of his lifestyle choices are his to make because he voluntarily left. And I guess I'm here to say, what are the chances? Because I, I know, and this probably lands on the older crowd more than the younger crowd, but what are the chances that you, being Hebrew, are raising a Canaanite family? Like, you're in the promise, but the testimony of the faith in your household is so messed up that your kids are going to get away from this Christ-like hocus-pocus as soon as they can. Like, are the ears of your children just waiting to get to college to hear that professor say, ha, Christianity... Is that going to be music to their ears? I mean, you've got to remember, this whole account begins with, this is the account of Jacob. What kind of faith is being preached in the way your family is being lived out? Let's keep reading. I'm just going to read 12, 13, and 14. Because it requires great scholarship to figure this one out. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep. And his friend Hira, the Adulamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she thought that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. I don't know if Shayla's actually married, but it's clear to her that she's not getting the phone call. Okay? Now, the, the challenging part of these three verses is the way that the pieces seem to hook together. You have Judah who's grieving the death of his wife, and when his grief is complete, obviously the next thing to do seems to be to go check on the shearing of your sheep. That's what we all do when we get over the grief of our dead spouse. We get up and we check on the sheep, right? So you have that. That's kind of weird. The next thing that's weird around it is that Hira the Adulamite, his punk buddy, says, I'll go check out your sheep. Like, who does that? I mean, it isn't like they've never seen sheep. But I got nothing to do. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing is, is that Tamar, somehow the end of the mourning of, of Judah's dead wife and the shearing of the sheep trigger for Tamar, this is a great time for me to dress up and disguise myself as a prostitute. Now, how does that happen? What happens? Because this is a very challenging translation, the shearing of the sheep. It requires, work with me here. We're going to go back um, what I did is I went back to the original Hebrew, and instead of translating it into the English, I went to my Creole Cajun roots, and I translated it into the Creole French because it brings more to the light. 
And if you translate the Hebrew into the Creole French, it, instead of sharing the sheep, it is Mardi Gras. That's what it is. Okay? And in fact, to double-check this, I took German in high school, so I went and I opened my German books, and I read some Goethe, and I kind of boned up on my German. And if you work hard there and you translate Shearing of the Sheep, it's Oktoberfest. And, by the way, I, I called my Spanish professor friend, and he said it translates into Las Vegas in Spanish. And if you go to the message, it says, So wild oats. That's what's happening. It doesn't really say that in the message, but that's what's happening here. The shearing of the sheep was some big festival. It's some kind of drunk fest. It's the way all the guys get together, and it all starts to happen. Do you see what's going on now? What's going on now is you have this punk Adulamite friend. Come on, come on, Judah. You're still young, man. Come on. Shearing of the sheep. It's next Tuesday night. Come on. I'll go. I'll tell my wife. I'll tell, honey, he's low. He just needs me to go along. You know, be with him in this time. Let's go, dude. That's what's happening at the shearing of the sheep. Judah, they're going to go whoop it up. Right? He has needs. Tamar knows it. Everybody knows it because they all know at the end of your grieving, and there's the shearing of the sheep. Don't miss it. I think this Adulamite friend is a punk. And you can say anything you want about Adulamites because God's killed them all. So no one can be offended. It's like, you know, they're, they're gone. But here's what happens. So on their way, they're on their way out and we're in the 15th verse. When Judah saw her, speaking of Tamar, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not really realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal in its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman. But he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, Where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road to Enaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, Let her keep what she has, or we will become the laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, Bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law, I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are.
this is where it's troubling. Because God has clearly come in. God is clearly on Tamar's side. So you have a whole lot of wrong and messed upness in this. But God seems to not be overly concerned about that. God seems to have sided. He sided with Tamar. Tamar is pregnant and she's pregnant with twins. She's got a double blessing here. But sometimes it's difficult to talk that way because of all the other smoke and the trash that's involved in the story, the deception and the sexuality and the prostitution and, and the lies and then the, the hypocrisy of Judah on the back end and all of this that's happening. It's difficult to kind of stare through and see what's going on. But maybe we can ask, is Tamar really a prostitute? Is she really a prostitute? No. She disguised as a prostitute. In fact, the text never calls her a prostitute, by the way. The Hebrew is careful. It says Judah thought she was a prostitute, and it says she was convicted of prostitution or accused of prostitution, but the, the Bible doesn't say, and Tamar became a prostitute. Or the Bible doesn't say, and she prostituted herself. Another thing you notice that's worth noticing about Tamar is she doesn't collect on it. So if she's a prostitute, why is she not collecting on it? Another thing to say is, is as soon as she's done, she takes off her garb, her prostitute costume, and she puts on her widow's clothes again. What Tamar is trying to do, okay, is, is, is weird, is kind of lost and grievous as this must be. What Tamar is trying to do is take what is rightfully hers. That's what's going on here. Tamar is obligated to have a son through this family, and Judah has been cheating her out of it. That's what's at work here. And God sees it, and God rewards Tamar. Tamar has the right to this child. In fact, in many cultures, levirate cultures that experience levirate marriage, the father of the dead son was a candidate to be the person who would receive the daughter-in-law. Remember, the goal is we now have a woman who has been pledged and has given her virginity, and now no one's going to marry her, so somebody has to take care of her. That's the object. The object of levered marriage is somebody has to take care of this woman, and somebody has to take care of this bloodline. And if in some cultures there wasn't another brother, the father, like in Judah's case, the father could take the girl, and it would be legal and appropriate. So it's potentially in Tamar's mind, this is just another form of leverage. But I, it is messed up. Like, I don't want to sit here and say ethics is situational. I don't want to sit here and say that it's all right in some cases to, to say this or, feel, you know, to lie or be deceptive. What I, what I can say is God looks at the heart of the matter and God looks at the heart of people and God sees what's true and God goes after it. And we're talking about people who are very far away from the promise. Okay, we're not talking about people who have the code of Moses, you know, on their iPad. That's not, the code of Moses doesn't even exist yet. We're hundreds of years away from the law of Moses. Now, certainly laws existed, but we're talking about a Canaanite girl who has been jilted and put out to pasture, who's trying to figure out her way out in life, and God sees her and honors her. Here's another way. Maybe in case you still have uh, like a judgmental spirit, like, ah, yeah, but 
that's God. God ought not. This is to happen. It's it's like two dogs fighting, and when God puts His hands in, it's sometimes it's difficult for the animals. You know, are those hands or are those dogs or what? You know, we see God working through this, and sometimes it's hard to kind of exonerate the Lord from this. But to say, if we're to suggest that God cannot work His will among people who are not doing the right thing, we are to suggest that God is not sovereign. What, is God only sovereign among the righteous? Is God only sovereign as long as you're doing the right thing? But as soon as you do the wrong thing, does he have to throw up his hands and go, well, I was going to tell the story of Jesus, but you got me. Good one, people. Is that what God's going to do? No. God is sovereign over the righteous and the unrighteous. He's going to tell a story through these people, and, they're messed, and all of this is messed up, but God reaches in, and he sees the heart of people, and he sees the heart of right, and he pulls it out. And for us to look at occasions like this and say, ah, oh, yeah, but this, this, you can't do that. And you can, I just, just think of it this way. How do you think God looks at your righteous acts? I think everything to God that we do looks like Tamar and Judah. Our, our righteousness is as filthy rags to the Lord. On your best day, your motives are still poisoned by agenda and personal desire. Right? You give that person a gift because you want the positive strokes that you get back from the gift, which is why your feelings get hurt when they return your lame gift. Because really, you were gifting yourself. God, how can God look down on us, even on our best day, and not see, well, their heart's in the right place, but still kind of messed up. Even Judas sees it. Look at this. Verse 26, Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. She was given, as she was giving birth, one of them put his hand out. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on its wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, so, this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out and he was given the name Zerah. I think the 26th verse, this you are more righteous, she is more righteous than I, to me, that is an important verse. I don't, I don't mean just important in the story. I mean, it's important to me in the Bible. Do you, you know, I've looked. This is the first time in the Bible that you find a human with a spirit of contrition and repentance. I'm not saying that Abraham ever, never was con- contrite before the Lord. I'm not saying that. I'm saying the Bible never told us he was. I'm never saying Isaac never felt bad for the way he treated his wife when he betrayed her over to Abimelech. I'm not saying he didn't feel bad about it. I'm saying the Bible never said to us that Isaac felt bad about it and said, Lord, I've been unrighteous, and that he sought the Lord to receive forgiveness. That never happened in the Bible. I'm not saying that Jacob never felt bad or that Esau never felt bad or that the sons never felt bad. Heck, I think that Judah felt bad for the way he sold Joseph out. I mean, at that same time, he leaves his family and his brothers and goes to make it his own way. I, th- I wonder, is he running away from something? This is the first time in the Bible that you hear, Duh, I am unrighteous. I think that's worth noting. 
Like I think on our never-ending quest to justify why God chose Judah, as, as though we have that right, but if we're looking for evidence, right? We are reasoning people. We want to know, why did God choose Israel? Why did God choose Judah to, through whose line Jesus comes? I would say this is as good a reason as any, that he showed true contrition and repentance before his unrighteous deeds. Is, is there any other way that you and I receive good standing before the Lord? Do you, are you going to try to press to digitate with all your filthy rags of righteousness, your acts of Tamar and Judah? Are you going to try to build something to impress the Lord? The only thing we have before the Lord is the ability to stand back and drop our hands and go, you are so much more righteous than I am. That is it. And you see it first in the mind and life of Judah. In fact, it sounds to me almost exactly like David. His great, 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 great grandson, who when encountered with his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite said, I am a sinner. That's what it means to have a heart after the Lord. Is to see righteousness and know you're not it. And so this is a gleam of hope. In fact, the next time you see Judah in this story, he's back at home. It's ironic to me that he's back with his brothers. It's difficult in these times. I, I, I think God sides here with Tamar. And I want to spend a little time on Tamar, if we could. I, this is the challenge of Genesis to people who read the Bible. They read the Bible and they see all the mess of the characters of the Bible that are engaged with one another back and forth. And they see all that's wrong in the lives of humans. And because God continues to tell the story, because God doesn't smite us all when we're wicked. Because sometimes, because his story, he has a little bit of more patience and kindness and mercy. So you can tell us whole story. We see this and we see the abuse that happens and we go, what, does God not even care? Does God not even care about Tamar? Did God not care about Dinah? Did, what's going on? We, we, we read these things and we see the, the way people are. And I think G- Genesis gets a bad rap for this because of kind of the hard way the story's told. And I think Genesis gets an especially bad rap because of the way that women are consistently objectified within this book. You read Genesis. I mean, I'm, I'm not a woman. I, mean, I know I don't have to say that, but I want to recognize I understand that I don't read it with your ears. But there are occasions where I come across and I go, how must it feel to read that as a woman? And it's times like this where we see the messed up world we're in where we go, does God care or doesn't he? Because of the sourness of the story. But I'm here to say, watch God. Every time there's a soured story, his role is the role of redeemer. Every time single time. There is not a time in the history of the earth where God has played any other role than just or redemptive. Pick all the attributes you have of God. Holiness, just, truthful, loving, merciful, kind. All of those attributes are always at work all the time. There's never a time when he takes his virtue and puts it on the shelf because he's just been out of shape at us. If he's smiting us, it's because of our wickedness, and the wickedness cannot abide in his holy presence. If he's redeeming us, it's because of his grace. And the fact that we see sour stories in a way is not because of him. It's because he's choosing and determined to work in the sour stories. Just watch this. I mean, go all the way back. 
let's just pick the first woman in Genesis that is objectified is, is Sarai, right? Abram goes down to Egypt, falls in with Pharaoh. Pharaoh gets an eye for Sarah. Abram lies about his relationship with Sarah, says she's my sister, not, she's not my wife. Pharaoh takes her, right? Abraham betrays his wife, Pharaoh takes her, and who rescues her? God rescues her. God afflicts Pharaoh and says, give me back my daughter. The next time we see it, Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot is in his room. They're banging on the door. Send out the men who are with you because we're going to rape them. And he says, he pawns his daughters over and says, take instead my daughters. Have my daughters. Right? What does God do? God saves the whole family. Blinding light. Blinds the people. The angels say, come with me and let's go. Chapter 20, Abraham falls in with Abimelech. Abimelech's like Pharaoh. Abraham once again gets nervous, once again betrays his wife, once hands her over again to Abimelech to be his wife, and who saves him but God? Hagar. Who sends Hagar away? Who sees Hagar crying? And who goes to Hagar and says, don't be afraid? Who says to Hagar, your son is going to be the father of a great nation? God does. Isaac, like his dad with Abimelech, gives his wife over, betrays his wife Rebekah to him. Who rescues Rebekah? God does. Leah, who loves Leah when no one else loves Leah? God loves Leah and gives her many, many sons. Who finally, at the end of the day, remembers Rachel and gives her Joseph? God does. Who, I know Simeon and Levi aren't perfect. I know they reacted the wrong way, but I will say this. Dinah is not with the Shechemites. God got her. God went and got her back. God sees the victim. And the attributes and nature of God are always at work all of the time. He is not the person who infringes upon us. He's not the person who brings evil to us. He's not the person who's happy when there's bad things happening. He is the God who has his hands down on this earth and is working out his redemptive story so that we all might be saved and so that we all might know him and so that we all might be able to experience him and and proclaim the joy of him. Do you see that in your life? And I, I have to ask, in your own life, are you at that place where you're thinking God has abandoned you or does God not care or has God done this to me? You are preaching to yourself a false gospel. God loved this earth and sent his son so that you might have life everlasting. Do you believe that? That is the categorical truth of scripture. In the account of the life of Joseph, we're going to see, we're going to see God's sovereignty being expressed when people do the right thing, and we're going to see God's sovereignty being expressed when people do the wrong thing. We cannot escape God's sovereign will simply because we're disobedient. He is going to be redemptive. 